Thank you so much, Deacon Narrell, for leading us in our service. Welcome, everybody, to our service. It's so good to see everyone here. And give yourself one more welcome look through your eyes, through your eyebrows, wave to each other. Very important. Why do you do that? Because we have now lived in a virtual world for so long, the welcome of each other is very, very important. So Singapore is a tiny nation. We're an island nation. And some people don't even know where we, that we exist. And some people think that Singapore is part of China. Right? And so, what's so famous about Singapore? If I ask now, who do you think is the most well-known person, most well-known Singaporean at the moment in the world, that has made us, put us somewhere on the map? If you do not know, it is this person. The first slide comes on. His name is Max Zeng. He's there on the left-hand side. And if you know nothing about Max Zeng, you can go and Google him, not during the service, after the service. He's a Singaporean student studying in London, and he's taking part with his university in this British quiz show called University Challenge. And he's so good, right? Especially with maps. You show him the map of any place, and before the quiz master can finish the question, he will probably tell you where. So here goes one of the sample things. Can you name that city and the state? Uh, by the way, this is not a map of Singapore, just in case. Can you tell me? It's India, right? It's India. So there are no borders, no boundaries there. You don't know how many states there are in India. Bong! He puts a pin there, and you're supposed to guess. And he gets it spot on. Spot on again and again. And so single-handedly, Maximilian Zing has put Singapore on the world map because he's so good with maps. From the age of three, he started to love maps. And he's so good, so much so, here are some of the nicknames for him on social media. He's now become Britain's newest social media darling. That means he is the favorite at the moment. He's the hero. One person says, rumor has it that Google Maps consults Zing before any map inclusions. <laughs> Because Google Maps sometimes get us to the wrong places. Another one says, you can drop Maximilian Zing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you still find a way home. <laughs> Another one said, please do not make Max, uh, Max Zing angry. He will find you. <laughs> <laughs> and the others go on. He's the greatest human satellite navigation system. He's the walking atlas. And another one just asks, question, can someone ask Max Zeng where my charger to my phone is, please? <laughs> He's that good. I just watched a snippet of him. He's that good. It's nothing like being recognized. Nothing like being treasured. Nothing like being appreciated for who you really are. When he was growing up, was he considered a nerd? I'm not sure. <laughs> was he considered a square? Was he considered narrow? Was he considered weird? But he's now single-handedly put Singapore on the world map by his knowledge of maps. On the other hand, it's really sad when you're not accepted by your own hometown. And here is a Chinese-American, Zui, went to skate for China. And she fell and she failed again and again. How ridiculous your performance is, social media 
comment. How dare you skate for China? And look at her face here as she falls. All the mental pressure upon her, which tells you that opposition and rejection has a very high price in every sense of the word. And it goes on, the comments about her on social media. Zui, you cannot even hold a candle to an amateur, which means, right, you are not even an amateur in that alone you want to represent China. Another comment with 11,000 votes at that point itself. This is such a disgrace. You compare Zui and Max Zing, and there's nothing more painful and humiliating than being rejected by your own people while you're trying to do your very best. You can capture both the ecstasy of being treasured and accepted and the pain and the humiliation of being rejected. You will understand Mark chapter 6. Because Mark chapter 6 crowns off, closes off what we call the message the lesson of Jesus, and you get two pictures of Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus has unmatched authority, obviously given by God. Authority to call people to follow Him. Authority to tell people to leave their families and their security to follow Him. Authority to heal diseases. Authority to cast out demons. Authority to push back on Satan and his work in deforming us, distorting us, and destroying us. So side by side with his authority is increasing rejection of him. So the theme of rejecting Jesus is very strong if you look at it. The turning point is actually in chapter 3, verse 6, where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the Herodians, the political leaders, so when you put religion and politics together, it's very powerful. I went to Myanmar not so long ago and realized that when you put the politics and the religion together, it's a really powerful thing. You never mess up with the Buddhists there, the militant Buddhists there. The Pharisees and the Herodians plot to kill Jesus, get rid of him. In chapter 3, verse 21, his own family thinks that he's out of his mind. Has any of your family think, said to you, you're out of your mind? Don't, don't answer. It could be a light-hearted moment. It could be a very angry moment. But for them, they watch Jesus in action. And far from saying he has this authority, he's come from God, they think he's out of his mind. In chapter 3, verse 23, the leaders now from Jerusalem, the capital, they come down and immediately they call him Beelzebub. And Jesus changes In calling me Beelzebub, you're saying that I'm Satan. You know, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan be divided, fight the civil war between himself? In chapter 4, verse 1 to, 1 to 20, he tells the parable of the souls to explain that though he comes from God, why Israel will increasingly reject him. So parable of the four souls, out of which three are bad souls, and one is the good soul. In 5, 1 to 20, for the first time, Jesus moves into Gentile territory. And Jews are not welcomed by Gentiles. Gentiles are not welcomed by Jews. Is there any race in Singapore that you are not very happy with? We are, on the whole, not very happy with foreigners here. And we have to be quite mindful of that. 
quite repentant about that because in God's eyes, all races are created equal. Amen? I, I, let me try that again. Huh? Because we got our sisters in Christ from Rhoda Fellowship. We got our brothers and, brothers and sisters in Christ from our Basque ministry who have come out of, of a hard background, a drug background through imprisonment. We are all equal in sin and we are all equal in our Saviour. We are all equal in salvation. Amen? It's very important we get that right. And so the Gentiles, after he, after Jesus does something that none of them can do, he exorcises, cleanses this man who is demon-possessed by a legion of demons, 5,000, which means this man is totally possessed. He's under Satan's rule. You would expect after Jesus does this among the Gentiles, they'll be so amazed to say, Jesus, please stay back and perform more miracles and preach the gospel to us. They say, please go away because we lost 2,000 pigs. And if we made a movie of Jesus and it had this scene, you know, the movie's end and then there'll be explanations and credits. It, it cannot have the credit. No animals were harmed in the making of this movie because 2,000 pigs died. So the rejection of Jesus up to this point and with that background, you can now understand the rejection of Jesus in chapter 6. He's now in verse 1 to 6 rejected by his own hometown in Hokkien Kakinang. You're rejected by total stranger, it's okay. You're rejected by Gentiles, yeah, Jews and Gentiles, yep. But by your own hometown, it cuts really deeply. Then in 6, 7 to 13, the disciples train, spend time with Jesus, a definition of discipleship. The disciples now are sent to proclaim, to gospel Israel. And as they gospel Israel, what is the reception? We'll take a look at that. I put it in the red, the middle section, because I'll spend most time trying to unpack this portion that will link everything together and highlight the main meaning here. John the Baptist is rejected. He's rejected to the point of being beheaded. Then in 6.30 to 44, he's accepted by the crowds. Is he truly accepted by the crowds for who he is or what he can do for them? Is he accepted for who he is or what he can do for them? If you are only accepted for what you can do for people, you are accepted in what we call a utilitarian way. As long as you are useful to me, I accept you. As long as you are no longer, the moment you are no longer useful to you, I drop you. In 6.45 to 56, he is unrecognised by the disciples as he walks on water. And so, how do we understand this? The theme of rejection. It begins this way, and we take you to the heart of this, when Herod, in chapter 6 verse 3, not Herod first, and the family is asking, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him, and Jesus said to them, Can you read this in response to the last verse? So look hard at God's word and listen to God speak to us. This is the only time Jesus is referred to 
And as it were, his work, his profession is he's a carpenter. By, by mentioning this and, and Mark recording this, it's what we call a put-down statement. It's derogatory, it's negative. So what do you work as? Oh, carpenter, carpenter. Isn't he as common as us? Isn't he as ordinary a worker like us? So it is a put-down, it's a look-down. And then son of Mary, could there be a hint of wrongdoing? Could not this be the illegitimate son of Mary? That she was pregnant before she was married? And half-brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, everything in there is what we call negative, derogatory, a put-down and a look-down of Jesus. And a very strange phrase, they took offence at him. What on earth does this mean? Look here. We know this guy. He's no different to us. Let alone him think and behave. He is better than us and greater than us. He's no different to us. But he's behaving as if he's greater than us. And God forbid that Jesus has anything to do with God. And God forbid that Jesus could be God or sent by God. That's the line of thinking. They took offence with him. Which means Jesus is too ordinary, is too common, is too unspectacular to be doing this and to be, as it were, getting us to question, who then is this man? And we have to reach the answer that he is not like us. He's sent from God. He is about God. And he is about God's kingdom and God's glory. And so, we need to beware as we listen to this. Is Jesus too ordinary for you to give for you to give him second thought? Has he become too unspectacular and ordinary to you? That you've heard of him for so long, you've joined ALPC and every week is about Jesus. Or you grew up in a Christian home and from young you heard about Jesus and it's nothing spectacular to you. We have to beware if Jesus becomes too ordinary, no more a challenge to you. And then, sorry, we'll go back. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own hometown and among his relatives in his own household. So you see the different perspective here? They look at him, his hometown folk, they cannot see. What is it they cannot see? They see him, but they cannot see that God is working in him and through him. They can't see anything of God and anything good in him. How does Jesus see himself? He sees himself here as a prophet. A prophet is not without honour except in his own hometown. And when he quotes this, he says, Israel, you have a long history. Singaporeans, you have a long history. You're very well known for what? Singaporeans, you're very well known for what? Except for Max Zin, he's very well known for maps. What are we collectively well known for? We could be well known for good food. We love food. All of us, most of us are foodies. Israel and the story of Israel, they are known for their rejection of God's prophets. And Jesus is saying to them, it's not new. I'm the final prophet and you're going to reject me as you reject the rest. 
You rejected them and you killed them. You got rid of them because they came and spoke God's word. They spoke God's word to get you to turn your life around. They spoke God's word to get you to repent. They spoke God's word. And so nothing new. You have done this all your life. A prophet is not acceptable, not accepted in his own hometown. And he could not do any mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few and he marveled because of their unbelief. You know the word there in some version? Jesus was amazed. Up to this point, you read in chapter, to chapter 5, right? The early chapters, they are amazed at his teaching. They are amazed at his works. They are amazed at his authority. They are amazed at him. Now the tables are turned and Jesus is amazed at his own Kakinang hometown lack of faith in him. Of the people who should first believe in him, I know this guy, he's different to us. He grew up among us, but now I see he's different to us. They should have been the first to recognize that. They were the last to recognize that. And so Jesus didn't perform many miracles there. Why? Not because he could not, but he would not. So Jesus is not undiscerning. He's not desperate for followers. And it's important to ask afresh. It's just, is Jesus too ordinary for you? And then we skip the disciples for now. We go on to the next account about Herod. And Herod is wondering, who is this Jesus? Could he be John the Baptist resurrected? But others say he's Elijah, and others say he's a prophet, one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard this, he reflected, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent right, and seized both John and, uh, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Important to get the context of this as much as we can. So he's wondering, who then is this Jesus? Is it John the Baptist beheaded and risen? For John had been saying to Herod, what is it that John has been saying to Herod? Let me ask you, what's the most dangerous thing you could do? The most dangerous thing you could do now is to walk out without a mask. And how many times in my hurry to go to an appointment or, or something, I'll walk out of the car and then, oh, forgot the mask. At least I can plead, uh, silver hair, forgotten. Uh. <laughs> so if I get confronted by a, a safe distancing ambassador, what's the most dangerous thing you could do? The most dangerous thing you could do is to confront someone about their sin. That's what John the Baptist did. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And at this point, Herod, he's not a Jew. Did he know of God's law? which tells you that this marriage thing cuts right across. The marriage institution, if you break it, it cuts right across. And Herodias had a grudge against him. So Herod, his sin was exposed. Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted him, to, wanted him put to death. But she could not. Why? Because Herod, though he was the ruler and the title given, he's not actually the king. He feared John. He feared John, and you look at that, 
knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, he, he kept him safe. Maybe he was so afraid that John was popular. If he did anything to him, Herod would be in trouble. When he heard him, he was interestingly greatly perplexed. That means there was curiosity and he was attracted to John and his teaching. Though John had highlighted a sin of his life. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, not because of his oaths, but because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And so, Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter. What do you think this was all immediate? I want to make sure you, he's killed, and I want evidence he's killed. The evidence must be right in front of me. And brought his head on a platter. All of us here would squirm, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. I want you to look hard at verse 29. What mood would the John's disciples have been? It's a very sad moment, a very sad moment. And we need to understand this, to understand the cause of discipleship. John the Baptist is a picture, the first picture to the crowds who are following Jesus. John the Baptist announces Jesus. So two people about the kingdom of God. He is the visual display of the price you have to pay if you follow Jesus and believe in his, in his authority. So he comes, John the Baptist, to point out sin he comes, as it were, to offer a new beginning to Herod. He calls him to repent and believe. And then he pays with his life. This is the first warning sign that following Jesus is not about popularity. That following Jesus is about fidelity, faithfulness at all costs, faithfulness to the end of your life, at the cost of your life. So choosing Jesus is costly. Because whatever happens to John, Jesus is going to increasingly teach his disciples it's going to happen to Jesus dying on the cross. And what happens to John and Jesus will happen to those who believe in Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Believe that Jesus is God's answer to your problem and my problem. Choosing Jesus has always been costly. Discipleship is costly. But there's also a flip side to it. How does this whole thing unfold? This beheading of John the Baptist. It's a party. Have you been to a party? Everybody is happy. There are lots of drinks. There's a dance. And it's a very seductive dance. There's much pleasure to the men there. There's much pleasure to Herod as a man. He's so happy. So a little bit of wine, a lot of dancing and pleasure. Whatever you ask. Has anybody said that to you? Your parents said that to you? Whatever you ask for your allowance, I will give it to you. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. This was, a, was this a moment of greatness? 
if you can make the offer, whatever you ask, you have great power or great wealth. Or is this a moment of great weakness? In the final analysis, truly, on the surface, it sounds like great power. But underneath, it was a moment of great weakness. In this moment of self-pleasing, he was willing to offer whatever without knowing the repercussions. And you think about it, if what unfolds from this point onwards is living out the parable of the souls, you need to ask yourself, which soul is Herod? Which soul are the crowds? Which soul is the family? And here specifically, which soul is Herod? He shows initial interest, he's curious, he's attracted to this. But finally he rejects. So what moved him from this journey of initial curiosity to final rejection? It's a very important lesson for us, right? He could be the thorny ground. Where the worries of this world, destructive anxiety, where deceit, the fake security, or desires. And the desires is, you look to chapter 10, and the sons of Zebedee, they are asking who will sit on Jesus' right hand or left hand when he establishes the kingdom of God. Is what we call the idolatrous thing, the one thing that we want that will make my life complete. Let me just say that in slow motion. Right? You've got nine things in your life, nine out of ten. Every piece of furniture, everything you want to accomplish in your job, you got. You got the wife that you wanted, the husband that you wanted, the children that you wanted, the ministry that you wanted, but there's one thing, and that one thing is what makes you feel incomplete. You start listening to self, you will stop listening to God in the person of Jesus. And his self-interest, his self-importance, his self-pleasure, his self-sufficiency, you start listening to self, you will stop listening to God. And so, the necessity of a salvation choice. Followers, you must choose between self and you must choose between self and Jesus, God in the person and work of Jesus. You must choose all the time. And Herod, you know, chose this way. For his self-glory, he is representative of all of us. The last week, right? So much of your time and energy, not last week, your life, you spend a disproportionate amount of your time, your energy is doing what? Saving your face, doing things for yourself, instead of searching your heart. What does God want you to spend a disproportionate amount of your time doing? Searching your heart as He speaks His word to search your heart, as He sends His Son to search your heart. That's what John the Baptist appeared before Herod for, to search his heart and to reflect on his life. But Herod was more intent to, you know, you do wrong, but you want to look right. And that goes on for the rest of the Gospel. Where else God's glory seen in John the Baptist and then finally in Jesus going to the cross for us. He didn't spend or waste his life. You and me spend and then waste our life. Time and energy for self. 
They invested their life to search our hearts and then to save us from Satan and sin and death. They are doing the most right thing under God, but they'll be made to look wrong. They'll be made to look wrong politically. They'll be made to look wrong legally. Oh, they're doing, Jesus is always doing this on the Sabbath. He's a lawbreaker. A lawbreaker cannot be a God lover. He's always doing right, but they always make him look wrong all the way from now to the cross. And so, lessons for us. This is a moment in Herod's life. If Jesus is not Lord of your moments, He's not Lord at all. And, and this moment, believing in John and finally believing in Jesus, is a great threat to you. I want to ask, is believing in Jesus a threat to you? A danger to you? A threat to you? A danger to you? And into that moment of self, into a moment of lust, you can either save yourself, right? No, I'm, I'm not looking too long at this thing. You are. You spend more than 10 seconds looking at something when you should have skipped it when it appeared on your phone. Is this a moment of lust? You rationalize it. You explain it away. Is this a moment of saving your face? Is this a moment of your anger, but you said, no, it's about you. If you didn't say that, right, Mona, if you didn't say that, I wouldn't be like that. Is this a moment of envy, ambition, or fear? You either learn to save yourself, you redeem yourself, or you trust Jesus to save you. So for the young ones here, if you get really angry or irritated with your brother or sister, right, why does your brother or sister irritate you? Into that moment, say, Cheche is like that, Coco is like that, uh, they, they, there's always they. But how about you could be a little bit envious of your brother, a little bit jealous of your sister, and begin at three years old. But you never search your heart. Your parents never got you to search your heart. And so you go on what we call behavioral change not heart change. You carry that. And you say, hey, I spent three hours on the phone trying to solve a domestic problem. And so walk them through. Why did this breakdown happen? Why was this child a danger to the family? The whole family was, un was endangered. And the sibling felt endangered, right? At risk because of the behavior of the sibling. Why? could have been rivalry from young and then one incident blew it up. You either save yourself, explain yourself, or you entrust yourself to Jesus says, I really don't like my brother. From young, my father always favoured him. Right? So, <laughs> one said, she's okay with it, right? She said it lightheartedly. She likes Kentucky Fried Chicken. Why? Because from young, huh? The mother always preferred the brother to her. And whenever Ch Chinese New Year, festivals, etc., always the brother will get the chicken thigh, the chicken wing, the best part of the chicken. So now that she's grown up, she can earn her own, she go and eat till heart's content at Kentucky Fried. <laughs> it's a light-hearted way to deal with it. But there's no point trying to change the mother's preference for the son. He will always get the chicken thigh. He will always get the best part. 
It works out this way. Into that moment of self, you either try to do it. So the price of rejection, there's a price of following Jesus, but there's also the price of rejecting Jesus. It's God's call to repentance. Herod sin of idolatry, Herodias' grudge. So beware when you are a bad listener to God at that moment. He says it's about your heart. You say it's about somebody else. Beware when you don't hear the gospel, the bad news about yourself. You will never receive the good news of Jesus saving your heart. And more about the heart next week when Jesus will speak about out of a man's heart comes all kinds of evil. They don't come from the outside. They come from the inside. And so for Israel, the price of rejection. Remember, I deliberately didn't touch on Jesus sending the disciples out. And as he sends the disciples out, he says to them, if they welcome you, fine. So don't take, take no money, take nothing with you, no tunic. That's not a, a missionary principle, you know, because that was specific only to the 12 in their mission to Israel under Jesus. Today, if we obey this and send our missionaries like John Wong or Chelsea to Japan, say, take nothing. Huh? It's, it's a misapplication of this. It was only unique to the context there. Right? And he says, if Israel really, they are really of God, they will know that God has sent me to send you to preach this good news. But if they reject you, if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, you shake the dust that is on your feet, a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. See how dangerous this is? This language here is very important language, right? And the language here is one of what? When the Pharisees ever came across a Gentile area, when they left a Gentile area, they will shake their sandals of the dust because unclean. It's a warning. It's a warning. And the warning is you must never get used. Jesus turns it around of dismissing the good news and dismissing Jesus at the heart of the good news. So Israel, the price of rejection. And Jesus, who is this man? When he went ashore, he saw a crowd. He had compassion on them because... They were like sheep without a shepherd and began to teach them many things. The disciples said, there's so many people here. Send them away, Lord. You send them away. Ask them to find their own food. And Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. I wanted you to notice, right? Who is this Jesus? Authority. He's a balance of authority and yet humility a balance of might and mercy. In the song that was just taught to us, that was so beautifully signed, right? Jesus is both strong and kind. He's already so tired. And the mental strain of rejection upon rejection upon rejection. How much rejection can you take? You rejected in school, at least you accepted at home. You rejected in school, you come back, you're now rejected by your parents. You rejected at home, you rejected by your friends, you reject. You can only take that much rejection, but Jesus remained strong and kind. He had compassion on them. 
And so he, he had already taught them, gave them the spiritual bread, and now he feeds them with the physical bread, which tells you he's ultimately the good shepherd. The good shepherd that God had shown to Israel. This is the good shepherd who feeds you and cares for you. Never doubt him. You know how painful he can get? He got into a boat, the final scene, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, the disciples, but for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. To really capture this, now Jesus is now rejected by his own inner circle, his innermost circle of his disciples. Rejected there, rejected here, rejected by his innermost circle. Remember the, he was in the boat and they lacked faith? This is slightly worse. They lacked faith. Do you not know we're going to drown? And now they lack faith and their hearts were hardened. Lack faith and hardened hearts. And you need to ask, has Jesus become too familiar to them? Not too sure. This is early stages, but for us, we can extrapolate that. Is he too ordinary? Is he too familiar to us? We have now boxed Jesus in. You study Jesus so well, more than you know yourself, more than you know him. How did Jesus keep going with this increasing rejection? Notice this. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. You look at the final thing, what a lonesome figure Jesus is. When he's performing things for them, doing things for them, crowds love him. He sends the crowds away, he sends the disciples away. What does he go and do? His highest priority is, his highest priority is communion with God. Unless he communes with God, prays to God, talks to God, gets his instructions from God, he, God sent him to preach the kingdom, he will have no common union with us. Because his common union with us is because he has obedience to the Father. So what do we see in Jesus? Jesus strong and kind. Obedience to God at all costs. It's increasing, it's increasing. Rejected by us at all costs. His communion with God showed in his many times of prayer kept him going for our redemption, for our sakes. I just want to make a side point that we are highlighting a lot in ERPC. About three weeks ago, we showed you a glorifying God devotion, a video, right? We are serious about family devotions. And we just interviewed Dr. Ho Yuki and his wife, Hui Hui, of how they brought their kids up from young, they laid their hands on their children's chest, prayed for them, then taught them, gave them one sentence things, no matter how hard it is. And now the two boys are studying in America and they have their own walk with God. All parents, it's a struggle, but you must try. And basic, our youth fellowship is getting our kids to read the Bible and to do their devotion. Without devotion to Jesus, there is no evangelism of others. Without devotion to Jesus, don't talk about ministry at Eopresi, at Adam Eopresi, at Bishan Eopresi, at Tengah. 
You're not right in your own heart with God. How can you go and save the hearts of other people? You don't pray to Jesus. You don't love Jesus. You don't surrender your lust, your anger, your envy, your am ambition, your insecurities, your unforgiveness to Jesus. How can we go and tell the rental flats there and the marketplace ministries anywhere? We have just passed. That's the easy part. Getting the money to build the building is the easy part. Getting you ready, 1,800 of us, 2,000 of us, ready to go and minister the gospel here in Bishan, there in Adam. The flats are coming up here beside the school. I joke with the staff, you could almost ask these fellas in the new BTO flats to just rappel down to come to service. But are you ready to minister to them? You will not be unless you work on your devotion to God. As Jesus showed us, it's not merely a devotional life. In your devotion life shows your devotedness to Jesus at all costs. His obedience to God at all costs, rejected by us at all costs. His communion keeps him going. So in ending, Jesus is strong and kind. A balance of might and mercy, a balance of authority and humility. And for some of us, is Jesus too ordinary? Is Jesus too threatening for you? He's you might not love him so much if he says to you, stop that habit. Stop that. Is Jesus just a passing need? You needed him for an exam? You needed him to overcome a problem? You needed him to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend? You needed him to get a child? You needed him to get a job? You needed him to be stable? You needed him... But do you, do you need him as Saviour and Lord? Do you worship Him? Is Jesus too familiar? Who is Jesus to me? Can you not? I, I don't know, over the last six days, six days, Monday to Saturday, how often have you thought of Jesus? How often have you mentioned His name? Here's a test, right? If the only time you hear Jesus' name, so I've been going for about 40 minutes. Do you know how many times Jesus has been mentioned in 40 minutes? A lot lah. <laughs> roughly count, roughly estimate. 30 times? 40 times? 50 times? Within 40 minutes, you hear his name 40 times. But the rest of the week, other dengada can hear or not? During the week, do you ever utter his name, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, strengthen me. Jesus, help me. Save me. Strengthen me. If the only time you hear Jesus is through the words of a preacher or your Bible study leader, I want to challenge you. You don't have a relationship with Him. Because if you are truly a follower of Jesus and a child of God, you would call upon the name of Jesus, the blessed, beautiful name of Jesus in every moment. From the time you feel something in your heart against your younger brother or sister, something disrespectful to your parents, I shouldn't speak to my dad like that. You're lording it over your children. I shouldn't treat my children like that. Jesus, help me. In that moment you don't need Jesus, I really doubt. You must question yourself. You must. You are a church attender. Are you a Christ follower? It's a very important thing. Who is Jesus to me? If you can think of Jesus once a day, is that good enough? Maybe start with that. Start with that. 
You can mention his name once a day. Start with that. It's better than zero. By Tuesday, you call upon him twice. By Wednesday, you call upon him three times. By Sunday, when you come here, you can say, Hey, Pastor Adrian, Pastor Chris, I did talk to Jesus seven times. We will say, you're seven times better than last week. Isn't that better? Seven times spiritually healthier than last week. Do this for two weeks. You're 14 times better. If you know anything about investment, wow, you invest in this thing, 7% return, no? CPF give you 4%. You invest in this compound interest, next week it's 14%. You do this for a whole month, 28% better. Oh, 28% February, la. 31% better. You get this? You cannot presume that you know Jesus if you don't call upon Him. So in a few moments, we are going to celebrate communion. And the communion is going to start with, for what I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the night he was betrayed. This whole remembrance of the last Passover in Jesus' life, Jesus' ultimate rejection was betrayal. When we do the communion together, it's going to be remembering his rejection, not his acceptance. And because he took that rejection by you and I, wholehearted rejection of him, he was betrayed. He took bread. And his body is not for himself, it's for you. His blood is not for himself or any wrong he did, it's for you. We do this in remembrance of him. And so very important we get this right. Nothing like being treasured and worshipped. Nothing more humiliating and painful than being rejected. I ask of you, friends, as this sermon ends and this service comes to an end, will God find you accepting Jesus? Will God find you rejecting Him? Only you can answer that in your heart. I can only preach with all my heart, pray with all my heart, live with all my heart, that I am accepting Jesus as Lord of my life and Lord of my moments of my life. Let's pray together. Stand and pray. Lord Jesus, you had all authority. And at the end of your life, you have given all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet in having all that authority, you had love and compassion and tenderness. We can turn to you and run to you and find our shield and shelter and salvation in you. I ask and pray that we would do this as God's people here in ERPC. Find us faithful in small things so that you give us the greater task of ministering to more and more. In your mighty name we pray for the kingdom's growth, for the Father's glory. Amen.